Lord, the way to strength is through weakness. The way to exaltation is humiliation. The way to respond to the darkness is to let the light shine within and show, Lord, show what it will show. So we pray this morning a painful prayer of David, but a prayer laden with hope in Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boasts against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging that we don't deserve your care or your kindness or your faithfulness or your deliverance. God, we are not worthy of being redeemed or rescued, let alone adopted as your son. But Lord, we cling to the gospel as the ultimate truth about ourselves. And we say that those who have been adopted into Christ, Lord, who, Lord, who, O oh Lord, could bring a charge against the elect? Lord, we will not be separated from your love. There are a lot of other things that we may be separated from, but we won't be separated from your love. God, the rock bottom reality for the child of God is that the most important treasure we own, the most important thing we have, which is you, cannot be taken from us. And indeed, Lord, light and momentary troubles are only preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that, that we will experience for all time as we delight in you. And so we thank you, God, that we stand here as invincibly rich people. Our riches, our, our, our wealth in Christ, Christ being our wealth, cannot be taken away from us. We, we, will, we will suffer no catastrophe or hardship which will remove us from you. And in this, we rejoice. 
All glory be to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated, and if you have children, you can dismiss those kiddos to pageant practice. We got our first installment of their hard work on, on Christmas Eve, which was really sweet. And, uh, and we're looking forward to that on, on January the 8th. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 10. We continue to make our way through the book of Acts after taking a brief break to look at the Christmas promise and spiritual warfare. And now we look at the proclamation, the spread of the gospel to all people. And we're going to spend probably two weeks looking at this section of scripture. Now, there is a lot, there's a lot going in, going on in this particular chapter. This is kind of a hard chapter to preach. This, this one and the next one, there's just a lot thematically and narratively. The story's kind of uh, intertwined and so on. But, but there's really one message that comes through really loud and clear that seems to be God's primary intended mass message for in, including this section of Scripture into his Holy Bible, and that is this. And we see it in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That seems to be the main message of this chapter, that God shows no partiality. And there are two sort of sub-themes underneath this idea that God shows no partiality. And the big one in chapter 10 is that God shows no partiality in respect to people's ethnicity. Like God isn't, isn't for one genetic uh, kind of person. And, and God is not for one genetic profile and against another genetic profile. God is not, God is not uh, partial to one ethnicity over another. Now, here's an interesting observation as I say that. You may say, well, no, duh, right? Now, I, I want to just point something out to you. That shows that the church has made some progress, no? Right? Like, like, like when, when, when this chapter was recorded and when the first audience received it, they would have heard, wait a minute, you're telling me that God doesn't have ethnic preferences? It would have been stunning. It would have been revolutionary to them that this idea that God shows no partiality, their whole, their whole faith system was built on the notion that one God for one people and one geography and so on and so forth. So if when I say God shows no ethnic racial partiality, you say, tell me something I, I don't know, that's an evidence that the church is growing up. There's progress being made. I think, I think that if I preach that sermon alone, I think everybody would be quite bored because we were not... Uh, we are not, in spite of what my haircut may suggest, white supremacists, right? Someone told me that this morning already. I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> so that's, that's the, one of the sub-themes with this idea of God shows no partiality, is there are no ethnic preferences in the redemptive plan of God. But there's a second theme that shows up in this chapter, in this idea that God shows no partiality, and that is is that there isn't two ways to salvation. One way for really bad people, grace, and another way for good people, works. That's the second kind of sub-theme of this idea that God shows no partiality. There, there's not two ways to salvation. It's not as if the good people 
get to earn their way, and then all of us really bad people need like the get out of hell free card. You know, that, that's, not, that's, not, that's not the theme. That's exactly the opposite of what this passage teaches. And that's the idea we're going to look at this morning. And it really comes through because one of the main characters of our story is so darn good. He's so darn good, but he's Jesus, and his name is Cornelius. And if you look at verse 1 in Acts 10, you'll see just how good this fella is. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we need to, to understand what's going on in Cornelius's life. It, we need to understand a, a theological concept called do, uh, common grace. We need to understand, like, what is common grace? Because, because Cornelius is like peak common grace. Like, he, he's a, the Bible says that that text said that he's a part of the Italian cohort. And what that means is he's Italian. He's from Italy. So old Cornelius is living, you know, La Bella Vita. He's got, the, he's got the sweet life. He is experiencing peak common grace. Uh, centurions are pretty wealthy. There's a story in the Gospels in Luke where uh, another centurion encounters Jesus, and it's said that he himself had built a synagogue for all the Jews living in the area. As you could see in our text, they have servants and they have people under them. Classically, centurion the name was given to 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 designate someone who was in charge of a hundred men it it probably was more than that but that'll give you some idea this guy is 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 blessed with wealth he's blessed with servants he's blessed with subordinates and he is also pretty devout as a gentile anyway to judaism there was a group of people a group of gentiles back in the day who were really interested in judaism just not the circumcision part so, uh, so they would go pretty far down the road of Judaism and observe most of the practices, but they were not considered Jews. They were considered maybe sometimes called God-fearers, as we see in this passage. So he's described as devout to Judaism. He fears the Lord, which we've been talking about quite a bit in the past few months. He, uh, he cares for the poor, gives alms, he prays continually. And, and here, here's something very important to see. This is all a guy who needs Jesus. This is a very interesting idea. And this is what I was talking about when I was saying this idea that God shows no partiality means also that there isn't two ways to God. Uh, grace for those that are really screwed up and good works for those that kind of have their, their ducks in a row. Common grace is a pretty important idea to understand just to understand the world around us. A theologian named Louis Burkhoff 
wrote something pretty nice in describing what common grace is. And I do want to just communicate this to you guys because I think it's something that's just be good to have as a, as a lens when you, when you look at the world and you look at people and even as you look at yourself. So Louis Burkhoff says it this way, the origin of the doctrine of common grace was occasioned by the fact that there is in the world, alongside the course of the Christian life with all its blessings, a natural course of life, which is not redemptive, and yet exhibits many traces of the true, the good, and the beautiful. So he's like, why did this doctrine come into being? Well, it came into being because as people looked into the world, they saw, yeah, Christians are blessed for following the Lord and so on and so forth. But you know, there's a lot of goodness in the world that's not directly pinned overtly, outwardly, explicitly to the gospel. There's a lot of people that show traces of the true and the good and the beautiful. And how does that mess with this idea, this orthodox idea that all men are dead in their sins and trespasses? And so this is common grace became a discussion point figuring out, well, what's going on here? The question arose, he says, how can we explain the comparatively orderly life in the world seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? How is it that the earth yields precious fruit in abundance and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles. How can we account for it that sinful man still retains some knowledge of God, of natural things, and of the difference between good and evil, and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior? What explanation can be given for the special gifts and talents that with which the natural man is endowed, and of the development of science and art by those who are entirely devoid of the new life that is in Christ Jesus? How can we explain the religious aspirations of men everywhere, even of those who do not come in touch with the Christian religion? How, how can the unregenerate still speak truth, do good to others, and leave, lead outwardly virtuous lives? So what, what's the answer to that? What, 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 what is occurring that allows this world to be so full of goodness, even though many in this world lack saving knowledge of jesus christ and and why is the world as pleasant as it and beautiful as it is and what's going on there well that's what common grace is common grace just describes god's general non-redemptive goodness to the whole world you've probably heard the phrase god causes the the, the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike when i heard that verse as a kid i thought that was god it was saying god is mean to both <laughs> <laughs> like because you know like when you know you're living in the midwest like you don't want it to rain like it rains plenty you know if you're not a farmer you know so i was like well god's just you know he's ornery to both of us you know but it's actually the opposite when you know and you got to think about this from a from a palestinian perspective you know rain was a good thing rain is a gift it is a gift and so when it says god causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike that's jesus referencing common grace in fact, I think it'd be worth just looking at that passage real quick. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 43, I just thought this would be worthy of expounding on very quickly. This is the actual whole context that Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your, your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then Jesus just kind of brings this home. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you may have read that and wondered, man, how can I be as perfect as God? Well, in, 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 in connection to what Jesus is saying, he's saying this. Love people who persecute you. Pray for them, because God gives everybody rain, even those that don't love him, even his enemies. So God is in some way indiscriminate in his blessings. Again, this, this impartiality theme emerges. God is indiscriminate in his blessings, even on those who hate him. And so if we only love those who love us, we're not being like God, who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So that's the idea of common grace. Charles Hodge said it really, really well, and he said it this way, there is a divine influence of the Spirit granted to all men, and this is plain, both from Scripture and from experience, to the general influence of the Spirit, or to common grace we owe, all the decorum, order, refinement, and virtue existing among men. To the same divine agent is due specially that general fear of God and the religious feelings which prevail amongst men. So I'm going to get back to that here in a minute, but let me just give you really quickly four purposes that God has in in this approach that he takes in common grace. So the first one is, is really simple. God declares his glory to all things through common grace. You know what's kind of a big paradigm shifter in your brain when you, when you really get it? Is to, is to understand that God is a fundamentally communicative being. He is interested in showing himself and sharing himself. Otherwise, none of us would be here and none of this would be here. Our denomination just released a, a statement of faith that they had been working on for, for many years. And, and the first part of that statement of faith actually refers to this nature of God as a communicative being. And I think it says it really well. It says, our eternal, transcendent, all-glorious God, who forever exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is by his very nature a communicative being. He both creates and governs through his words. It's pretty cool. And has graciously revealed himself to humanity. He has revealed himself through creation and providence in ways plain to all people, leaving no one without a testimony of himself. So the idea is, is what is God doing by, by making the world as nice as he's made it? And why is God, what is God doing in blessing all people with some gifts, circumstantial, and even some virtue? What's he doing in Cornelius? Well, one of the things he's doing is he's just declaring his goodness. He's just saying, look, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my nature. Number two, he's making, let's just say it's super obvious, he's just making life better for people. It is better to live in a world where some just judges and just policemen and honest mechanics live. Even if those judges and and policemen and mechanics don't know Christ, it's just better to live in a world where those people are honest. And so when we find someone or something that is pleasant, good, true, or beautiful, one of the things God's doing is he's just making it better for us. He's just making life better. And, And surely you see when you experience a dishonest judge or a dishonest mechanic or, or a dishonest policeman, surely you see how painful life could get if they were all like that. So number three, number third purpose. God is, is blessing the world with his common grace 
Because he is going to call all men to account for their knowledge of him that is evident through creation. And this is expressed very clearly in Romans 1.19 where, where Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them by his invisible attributes, namely his, uh, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So one of the things, just real, as an aside, atheism is not an innovation of the 20th century. Atheism existed in the book of Proverbs. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's always been there. It's just never been and will never be unless the state enforces it in a, in a sort of USSR way, in a very artificial way. Uh, it just will never be the predominant way that people think about the world around them because Romans 1, 19 and 20 is true. All that God has created calls people to think of a creator. So the number fourth reason, and this is the best one, the number fourth reason, what, 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 uh, another four, number four purpose behind common grace is that God calls people to himself and saves them because of the use of common grace. So for instance, in Acts 14, 17, Paul says to a group of pagans, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with gladness. And Paul will do this again in Acts 17, and he's just saying, look, you could tell that God's good. Look, look at the world. Look at how you've been blessed. And then he calls them to believe in the gospel. And that's what we see happening with Cornelius. He is just set up. He is just set up to receive the most important news of his life. And that is, is that God has sent his son to take on flesh, to live a perfectly righteous life, and offer up his righteousness as an atoning sacrifice for Cornelius and for everybody else. So that's, that's the real idea of this passage. And that is, we see common grace fully displayed, but we also see it's not enough. And that's the third point, the inadequacy of common grace. So we've, we've defined common grace. We've looked at the purposes of common grace. And it's pretty cool. I'm super glad it's there, but it's inadequate. It's not enough. If, if it was enough, if common grace was enough, we wouldn't even know about Cornelius. Because this is a story about Cornelius' need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you ever needed evidence that we are saved only by faith in the Lord Jesus and not of our own works, then the story of Cornelius supplies you with that evidence. The, the mere existence of this story supplies you with the evidence that no matter how good you are, it's just not going to be enough to satisfy God's righteous requirements. So Cornelius is the man. Like There are many people, I think... I wonder, is Cornelius, you ever read, uh, probably not, but the Puritans, when they're coming to Christ, you know, uh, you probably don't read a lot of, of weepy Puritans. Uh, that's, that's, that's usually uh, sadomasochistic pastors like myself. But, uh, but, you know, what's crazy is you'll read a story like David Brainerd. And, uh, and I think David Brainerd might have been a better man before Christ than I am now with Christ. Like, like, he, like they're, they're, these Puritans are so pious even before they're saved and they're spending all day in prayer and, and seeking him. But of course, of course, I say that in jest because Cornelius has a lot of good 
a good fruit in, in, in one respect, but in another respect, is not pleasing to God. He's not pleasing to God because even though he is devout, he is not devout to Christ. And even though he fears God, he knows nothing of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And even though he gives to the poor, he does not give to the poor in Jesus' name. And even though he prays, he does not approach the throne of God as a throne of grace. Because the throne of grace is only approached through Christ. As good as this man appears to be, he is good and lost. He is dead in his sins and trespasses. And he needs Peter, good old Peter, to come and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to him. And that's what this is all about. And that's what all of this goodness is about in Cornelius' life. Everybody needs Jesus. There are some people who have had more common grace than others. Some people are born naturally with bad temperaments and lustful minds and anxious hearts and critical spirits. Like that's their original operating system. And other people are given a much sweeter set of dispositions. And they're just born with a naturally advantageous set of personality features. And the fear always, when you're thinking about the gospel, the fear always is that the first group, the people who are born low, let's say, will think that they are beneath the gospel of Jesus. They're too neurotic. They're too sinful. They've fallen too many times. They'll think they're beneath the gospel of Jesus. And so we do a lot of work to say, no, it is exactly for you. The gospel, this gospel is for the neurotic. This gospel is for the lustful. This gospel is for, if, if you don't think you're sick, you don't need a doctor. The, the great physician has come. If you see your sickness, he is there for you today. But the last convert of Jesus before he died was a man being crucified right next to him for crimes that he had indeed committed. So we are so concerned that those born with a naturally uh, low set of dispositions, who maybe are getting a little less of the common grace than, than others, we're so concerned that those people don't think they're beneath Jesus. But there's another group of people who are born with a naturally sweeter set of dispositions, and they don't know the depth of depravity, mostly because they were raised well, or born into favorable circumstances, or yes, even genetically have received some sort of favorable uh, hand of cards. And we want to say to those people, we're worried about the other people, they think they're below Jesus, but we want to say to these people, we don't want you to think you're above Jesus. You need Jesus too. I think this moment when Peter and Cornelius intersect, it's, it's actually, in my opinion, the, the meaning of these two kinds of people. I think Peter got a bad hand. I, I think he is naturally prone to a lot of overt uh, doubt, sin, cowardice, simultaneous to pride and arrogance and boastfulness, you know. Uh, I think he got a, I think he got a bad hand, you know. So as far as hands go, which we'll talk about here in a moment, I think Cornelius got a really good hand. But both of them need Jesus. Peter is not beneath Christ. Cornelius is not above Christ. And I want to really think about this well, because this could really change the way I relate to my neighbor, and it certainly could change the way I see myself in relationship to the gospel. And so, what? 
talk about this in two different ways. And the first idea is just everybody needs Jesus. But now I want to talk about this in two kind of different ways. And the first one is this. I, I want to say that the distance between men is all of common grace. Okay? I want to say that the distance between men is all because of or due to common grace. So let's imagine we got the, the low-born person and the high-born person, okay? Let's imagine a bad man is morally speaking, I'm going to get a metaphor going here, he's morally speaking, he's living at sea level, all right? He's kind of a, he's kind of a, a rough dude, lots of, lots of temperament issues and neuroticisms and fears and whatever, and, and, and uh, he's, he's, let's say morally, he's as low as you can go without being in the ocean, you know? He's, he's living at sea level. Now let's say there's another guy, like Cornelius, who was born really high up morally. And let's say he's living on top of one of those 14,000 footers in Colorado, okay? And so you've got this distance between these two people. The person with all of the rough dispositions and fears and neuroticisms, he's down here at sea level. And the person who's born with this sort of favorable circumstances or character, he's born uh, you know, up at 14,000 feet. And so when you compare the distance between these two men, there's a lot of distance there. It's 14,000 feet to be exact. Um, I, I did actually ask someone one time what the elevation of sea level was. Uh, so, uh, so, 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 so you've got the distance between a high morality and a low morality. And in human terms, it's substantial. 14,000 feet ain't no joke, especially if you drove to Colorado in one day to hike one of those mountains and you were at nearly sea level and now you're trying to climb 14,000 Some of us have done this. It's not fun. It's hard. The distance between these two men when compared to each other is very large. But how did that distance occur? How did that distance occur? Well, look at verse 4. The angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is sacrificial language. This is the language of the Old Testament sacrifice. When someone would offer up a bull or a goat to God as a sacrifice, it was burned and it would say, you know, you've read these things. It'd say, this ascended before the Lord. So this is the idea. Cornelius is, is offering sacrifices of prayers and alms, of giving to the poor. Now, when you think about sacrifices, you'll see that that whole system is, is closed and it's all God. What do I mean by that? Well, who made the bull? And who kept the bull alive long enough to be worthy of sacrifice? Um, who made the owner capable of keeping it? Who made, who, who made the offerer, the, the person who offers it, who, where did the desire to offer it come from? Did it come from the, the guy? No, it came from the Lord. These are all acts of common grace. Who commanded the building of the altar? Who supplied the priest? Who made fire a thing? You see, the whole, the whole sacrificial system is all of God. It's all, it's all common grace. And so the idea here is, is, you can think of it this way. What if Cornelius was never stationed in Palestine and he never encountered Judaism and he never came in contact with the old covenants of promise, as Paul would call them? What if he was stationed in Britannia instead and he was just surrounded by a bunch of crazy pagans like the rest of the Roman soldiers were? Like, What if he never made it to Palestine? What if he never came in contact with the Jews? What if he never came in contact with the Old Testament? Would he be righteous then? No. 
Not in this way. His character, his devotion, his fear of the Lord and all of this is purely circumstantial. And it is circumstantially in his life and available to him because of God's providential common grace. So we look at people and we say, you're like, you're at sea level and you're at 14,000 feet. Oh my goodness, I'm impressed. God is not. Because he knows that if the person living at 14,000 feet morally has been given that status by him, by his circumstantial, providential, common grace work. And he looks at the person low. And you know what? The disdain that he sees there is not like what you might think. Because he knows who this guy's parents were. Right? He knows, he knows, he knows that what that what that home was, that what, the, what this morally low person's home life was like. He, he knows the genetic hand they were dealt. The, the, this, the distance that we see between the low and the high is, is something. The distance that God sees, it's, it's not really anything because he knows that the one who is high without Christ is only high because God has allowed him to be born into a favorable set of circumstances and virtues. So that's one way to think about this. Why do we say everybody needs Jesus? Why do we say that, that Cornelius wasn't good enough? Well, because the goodness that Cornelius possessed was simply a product of God's kindness, God's, God's grace. Cornelius had nothing to boast in of himself. And then there's this second idea, and this is, this is the main and the most important one. Okay, so you've got this guy living at sea level, and you've got this guy living at 14,000 feet. And what's the difference between the two of them? 14,000 feet, 14, feet of morality. Okay, great. That's big when you're comparing humans to humans. But here's the deal. God doesn't compare humans to humans. He compares humans to himself. And now we're in a situation where where 14,000 feet isn't really a lot. Because the distance between any man and his perfect morality and God is like the distance between the earth and the sun. Or more, of course, right? Quite more. So so 14,000 feet mean a lot on earth. But when we start talking about 9 million miles, or whatever the distance is between the sun, like when we start talking about these expansive differences, 14,000 feet don't mean much. And, and that's the idea of saying that when God looks at a human being, he doesn't compare you to other human beings. He doesn't sort through the deck and find the ones that you're least like or the ones you're most like. He doesn't compare you to someone good or someone bad. He compares you to himself. And no matter how good you are, even if you're Cornelius good, you'll simply not even register on the scale necessary to, be, to, to please God. And that's why Peter has to go to Cornelius with the gospel. Because Cornelius may be 14,000 feet closer to the sun, but the distance between that and the sun is still massive. It's, it's a nothing burger, right? So Cornelius needs Jesus. Peter needs Jesus. And this is the miracle of the incarnation. When God took on flesh, he closed the distance, that massive difference, distance, that massive moral distance between the goodness of God and the goodness of man. He closed it. Jesus, the God-man, reconciles all things to himself, even heaven and earth. And he closes the gap between each person and God's righteous requirements of that person. So 
Peter arrives. There's some interesting details on how he winds up there. We'll talk about that next week. But he arrives. And listen to what he says to this good man, this quote-unquote good common grace man named Cornelius. Verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the gospel, to preach to the people, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So how good is Cornelius' goodness? It was so good, it needed God to come to earth and die a murderous death on a cross. It was so good that God had to suffer to atone for his amazing goodness. That's how good Cornelius' goodness was. Not very good. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone, Paul sa- Peter says, the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let me pray. Gracious God, we are equal in our need for a Savior. Lord, we will never encounter someone who has their life so well put together that they don't need to be radically saved out of darkness and into light. And we will never meet anyone who is so messed up that they are beneath the free grace that Jesus offers. Lord, as we turn our pages in the New Testament from one page to another all the way to the end, we see all kinds of people saved. We see important people and nobodies. We see people who have their act together and people who definitely do not. We see wealthy people and poor people. We see healthy people and sick people. Lord, time and time again, page after page, your message is clear. You show no partiality. You call all men to put their faith in you. Every man, every woman needs Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And we praise you, Lord, that that gift is offered freely. If we have not, let us... Reach out, accept, and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.